This is the Eco Business Podcast, and I'm Gillian Parker. It is no longer business as usual when it comes to how we tackle climate change and rising global temperatures. Dubbed a code red for humanity, the Bumper United Nations report on global climate released this month warns us that as average temperatures rise, acute hazards such as heat waves and floods will grow in frequency and severity while drought and rising sea levels will intensify. These physical risks from climate change will translate into increased socioeconomic risk, confronting policymakers and business leaders with the challenge of how to address them. On today's podcast, we are going to talk about the latest climate report and how it will impact the conversation at COP26, a landmark climate conference beginning in October, how leaders can integrate climate risk into their decision making, and the importance of education, standardisation and transparency in sustainable finance. Today, I am joined by Elena Filipova, the Director of Sustainable Finance at Refinitiv, which is one of the world's largest providers of financial markets data and infrastructure and is an LSEG business. Welcome to the podcast, Elena, and thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Um, It's a pleasure to be with you and talk about those very important and um, urgent topics. We've had some pretty... uh, pretty stark warnings uh, given in the past week or so from the IPCC report on now what looks like the inevitable effects of climate change. Um, How might this shape the conversation at COP26 um, at the end of October and start of November time? Yes, you're absolutely right. Uh, The sixth IPCC report, uh, which uh, was released uh, just recently, Um, is very alarming, but frankly speaking, not surprising. Um, I think it uh, further builds out on a lot of uh, knowledge that uh, we we already know and have been hearing uh, for some time, uh, providing more scientific evidence uh, and justifications and um, and really the numbers speak for themselves and the the data speaks for itself. I think what that means is that um, all world nations and business leaders have to to do two things. Um, The first thing is improve the quality and urgency of their commitments. And the second is um, to move full speed into implementation. So let me unpack both a little bit. Um, We've we've had a lot of um, very ambitious and bold commitments across both the public and the private sectors, across all regions and sectors. And although those commitments at first sight are are extremely promising, send the right signals, the right uh, pathway, um, they still allow uh, for some, um, some inability actually to deliver on the uh, decarbonization of the economy that that uh, has to happen very quickly. Um, To give you an example, some of the um, commitments and objectives published by companies as well as by uh, nations um, focus on carbon intensity. And for example, reducing uh, the carbon intensity of a firm by 50% uh, in 2030 compared to a benchmark number. Um, And although that sounds 
create and, and very ambitious and at a high level aligned with uh, Paris Agreement trajectory. What it actually does in uh, practice, in reality, is it allows the firms that make the commitments to still continue increasing their carbon footprint at an absolute value because they're, as, as they're growing their business and, and growing their turnover, the intensity number is a ratio. And as companies grow, in theory, they can actually continue growing their emission footprint, but the intensity of ratio is actually reducing. That's one example of an area that, that I think is, uh, is somewhat challenging and, and we need to uh, take it a step further and look not only at intensity numbers, which are extremely good and service uh, very well for some use cases and purposes, but actually to start also measuring absolute footprint and absolute emissions, because that's at the end of the day what matters. Um, and uh, the second point around actual actions and implementation, it, it is what we have to have delivered yesterday. Um, there is no time to wait on it and, and continue just talking. Talking is great. It acknowledges the problems that we have. It uh, forces us to think about solutions and put solutions forward. But we have to start acting on those plans and, and solving the problems today. And as we speak about solutions, it's, it's also important to acknowledge that there is no single and simple solution to the climate change problem. And um, to solve it, it is required to really uh, go across a variety of fundamental changes across all sectors, across all stakeholders, across the full capital market ecosystem. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a very complex and um, uh, lengthy process which requires collective efforts and um, a variety of, of um, plans and, and process changes and initiatives that need to be rolled out. At COP26 later this year, I really hope that um, world leaders talk about what they are already doing and the impacts that they're having, rather than focusing on um, what they plan to do in the future. And I hope that um, a few months and, and years down the road, as we think and remember on Glasgow, um, we remember it as the time of bold and concrete implementation uh, plans that push society beyond the tipping point. No, I completely agree. Um, I mean, these bold and concrete commitments, um, you know, we may, we may see them being made, but do you think there's enough recourse uh, or sort of consequences for people who don't stick to the pledges that they make? Um, you know, do we see a lot of voluntary disclosure, voluntary commitment? So do you think there more could be done uh, to hold governments, investors, even financial institutions to account for uh, for their carbon footprint, for emissions, for the pledges that they make at these, you know, grandstand conferences. You're raising a very important issue. And indeed, at this point in time, I would argue that um, there is no, not enough um, following through on commitments and consequences. Um, but to be fair, I think that that's quite normal. 
um, because we're starting at, at a point where um, we lack even basic information and knowledge on um, how to actually break the problem down into smaller pieces that impact company A, nation B, consumer C, me and you. Uh, and although we know that we all have uh, um, a, 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 a responsibility and the role to play, um, it's a learning uh, curve. It's, it's a journey for all of us. And from my experience, um, nations, um, regulators, companies are very eagerly learning. Uh, they're thirsty for information uh, and they need data to be able to measure, uh, to improve performance and deliver on their commitments. And only with information can they be held accountable. So what, what we're seeing right now is um, many regulators are actually trying to solve for the fundamental challenge, which is lack of information. Um, and I think this is definitely the right place to start. Um, information empowers people to act. And as mentioned, only then we can uh, look to, to be asking the tough questions and be holding ourselves accountable. Um, and to give you just a brief example, uh, a lot of the, the regulatory initiatives um, here in Europe are really uh, designed to um, improve transparency, data comparability and data availability. Um, solving for the basic questions of, well, what is green? Which activities that, um, that I can invest into are actually having a substantial positive impact on climate and which ones are having a substantially negative impact on climate. These are, although very basic questions, very hard questions to answer. Um, there are no quotas at this point in time of how much should an investor invest in green activities versus brown activities. Um, because the expectation is that once you inform and make investors um, aware of where their money is going and how it's financing um, different organizations, uh, investors will very consciously make those uh, decisions to shift capital away from carbon intensive investable assets industries to um, to those that are transitioning and those that are less carbon intensive. I mean, the, the sort of the consequences were slightly touched on in the IPCC report because the increase of inaccuracy of attribution science in the report has some implications for law and litigation. How can investors and financial institutions then better integrate and then govern and manage climate risk? Um, I mean, as I mentioned, um, everyone is, is learning how to do it. There is no silver bullet. There is no one size fits all model um, that can be adapted and mandated to everyone to use. Uh, but there is a lot of information and knowledge that is emerging, including um, standards like TCFD that um, guide financial professionals, companies, and other stakeholders to um, 
how and what information is required to be able to uh, understand, assess and manage the climate risks that this stakeholder has. Um, so I'll, I'll bring it back again to, uh, to the basics, which is uh, data and information that is consistently available, that is standardized, that is commonly understood and used by different participants in the market. Um, this is really what will empower all of us to, um, to, to manage our climate footprints and risks more effectively. With that, I mean, there's, there are growing calls for the world uh, to protect nature in tandem with tackling uh, climate change. And countries are being urged to commit to placing a third, about a third of their land and sea territories under conservation by 2030. Do you get a sense that corporates are taking biodiversity loss as a substantial risk? Um, because biodiversity in nature certainly doesn't attract the same capital as, as climate um, does. And if they're not taking this risk seriously or as a substantial risk, why, why do you think that is? Indeed, um, a lot of the industry focus and work in the last couple of years has been around uh, climate change, um, understanding the, the risks that climate change present on uh, capital markets and vice versa. <laughs> the, the impacts that capital markets have on climate change. So the concept of double materiality. Um, and we've made a lot of progress, but the industry is um, starting to acknowledge the fact that, um, well, I guess, firstly, climate change um, is, is not, um, doesn't exist in isolation from the natural existence. They are very much interlinked and interdependent. And uh, uh, anyone, including investors, have to understand uh, the risks that nature-related um, issues have on, uh, on their investment um, uh, options and practices. Um, and what we are seeing in recent years is uh, different industry-led initiatives um, emerging in the market over the last uh, year or two to try to follow a, a similar um, process that we went through for climate, but now for biodiversity and, and nature-related um, issues, more broadly speaking. Uh, for example, earlier this year, the Task Force on Nature-Related Financial Disclosure was launched um, with an ambition to, um, to, to uh, develop uh, a framework of assessing those risks very similar to the TCFD framework. Our recent study revealed that despite a plethora of, sort of green pledges made by financial institutions and, and quarterly reports, particularly here in, in Asia, consumers know very little about how sustainable product, financial products really are. How do you begin to make sustainable finance more accessible and transparent? This is um, another great question. Um, and I will throw three things back at you. Um, the first is education. The second is standardization and the third is transparency. I think these are at the heart of, of the problems that we see around um, um, not so um, much understanding or knowledge when you go uh, down to the consumer level. 
um, education from my perspective is key. And it is key um, across consumers, but also across uh, financial institutions um, and, and other professionals. Um, because we do see frequently that um, when you survey the industry and ask um, why are you not integrating ESG uh, considerations in, in your processes, in your investment decisions and products, uh, the number one reason usually quoted by um, financial professionals is data availability. And although there are um, a, a, a whole series of known challenges around data, I don't want to undermine uh, this topic. Um, we do see that under the surface, uh, the reluctance for integration of, of ESG consideration is actually because of lack of confidence and knowledge on how to make the most out of those um, important uh, metrics and insights. So education, is really uh, critical. And um, encouragingly, we do see more and more universities and schools um, expanding and enhancing their bachelor's and master's of finance, for example, to have a sustainable finance focus and make sure that the new entrants into the workforce um, come prepared and ready to, to act uh, they don't have to uh, learn how to understand um, ESG and sustainability and make it work for in, uh, investment and financing decisions. So from my perspective, education is, is critical. Um, the second is, is standardization. Um, what we are experiencing is, is quite low confidence level amongst financial product consumers in sustainability uh, information and products. Um, and there are a, a variety of reasons for that, ranging from terminology and using same terms for to describe quite different concepts to um, uh, inability to um, explain uh, impact of those products and ensure that those align with the consumer desired outcomes and, and objectives and anything in between. Um, having standardization in how um, financial information uh, related to products, objectives, strategies is communicated to consumers is really important. This is both quantitative and qualitative communication. And the third, of course, is transparency. Operating in the form of black box and just using um, shiny words to describe and, and sound attractive to consumers is not enough. Um, investors really have to, um, uh, to take it a step further and be transparent about the processes, the, the impacts they're generating, the way that they are managing sustainability risks and avoiding um, significant harmful activities. Um, so I think that these three um, dimensions, if uh, they come together and, and we can improve on them, we'll also see a lot stronger uptake from a consumer perspective, because the, the demand, the desire is absolutely there, uh, and we have to take advantage of it.
think it's an important point about, uh, particularly about standardization as well. I mean, we often hear a very well-worn complaint about the alphabet soup of frameworks and indices uh, that are technically designed to help companies firm up their green credentials um, and improve climate-related disclosures. I believe that you're involved in the European Union um, Technical Expert Group on Sustainable Finance. And the EU Sustainable Finance Taxonomy um, is well, will hopefully produce a series of tools that will help promote transparency and, and shift more capital. Uh, towards sustainable investments. But what might be the impact of the EU sustainable finance taxonomy on Asia, uh, particularly as some markets, including Singapore, uh, which is uh, where EB is based, headquartered, as uh, you know, some of those markets attempt to carve out their own taxonomies? And how might it work um, in a region when you've got such variable um, economies, uh, perhaps unlike, unlike Europe? Um, it, yes, I mean, even here in Europe, we do have um, quite um, different economies, some having greater reliance on um, more carbon intensive sectors uh, versus others. Um, so we do have uh, a certain degree of challenges here as well. And I, I will repeat that one size fits all simply um, is very difficult to work. Um, the EU taxonomy um, work, I, th I think, is, um, is phenomenal and very innovative in terms of the um, ambition and the impact it's, it's looking to have on the industry um, and um, has the potential of becoming really the blueprint for global markets to follow. That being said, uh, the importance of international collaboration has been acknowledged by the European Commission from day one um, as, as, as they started working on the sustainable and the finance action plan um, back in 2018 and uh, created an international platform on sustainable finance with the purpose to collaborate with other regions and nations uh, to learn from each other, to share best practices um, and ensure that there is alignment of initiatives where it makes sense, acknowledging that in some areas it, it will not be possible to have full alignment and there will be uh, differences, regional, country-specific, uh, market-specific differences that have to be accounted for and will most likely result in um, some divergence. Um, but if I may make um, an analogy, um, even with uh, something that's quite uh, fundamental and, and non-controversial in financial markets, which, which is um, financial accounting um, principles, we do have um, different standards uh, with um, very, um, a lot of similarities. And, and some very uh, important but quite logical differences. I don't think what we're working towards from an ESG perspective is uh, going to result anything that's, um, that's fundamentally different from uh, what we've done for uh, financial data and, and financial markets. Um, you mentioned the alphabet soup, and this is still a problem that we're experiencing 
in, in global markets when it comes to sustainability. Um, we do use um, terminology differently across regions and across markets. And I think that that's causing confusion, problems, and, and arguably it's slowing down adoption. Um, and uh, European regulators um, do see that, do acknowledge that the EU taxonomy, of course, is, is, is the most um, significant effort in the area of um, bringing consistency in, in definitions and uh, understanding of what is it that, that we mean when we say things like green or brown. Um, however, I would um, even take us a step back into uh, even more basic things like what is it what is it that we mean when we say ESG and um, we know now some uh, regulators across Europe but also um, uh, IOSCO have launched consultations to assess um, what role um, they should play in, um, in regulating or bringing a higher degree of um, standardization and, and consistency across ESG data and ratings. Um, we, of course, at Refinitiv, this is at the heart of what we do. Um, and we have been advocating and building our products and solutions around the notion of first, ESG's fundamental data set, and second, it has to be fully transparent and auditable and comparable. Um, but that's not how uh, the, the data industry has operated um, as a whole. And um, we do need to look at, at some of the um, basics and uh, assess uh, what degree of standardization is required um, so that consumers have the same understanding um, when a financial institution says, this is the ESG rating of my portfolio or a fund or an index. Just to sort of finish off, uh, maybe a difficult question to answer, but what's your outlook for the next five to 10 years in terms of you know, where do you see sustainable finance going? Are you optimistic that there will be this sort of cohesive and robust framework that can guard against greenwashing? Um, my outlook for the next um, five years is, uh, is actually very uh, positive. Um, I do believe that we're uh, at, a, at a turning moment uh, for our economy and our society. Um, and we have the golden opportunity and the golden ch chance um, to turn things around. And so for uh, the, the biggest problems that our generation and, and generations before and after us uh, will uh, feel the consequences of. Um, and we all know the times of the essence. And we're at a point where we're actually moving into execution plan. And, and I expect it to be something similar to a snowball effect. Um, it's very difficult at the beginning. You do a lot of work, but um, you, you make very little progress. Your snowball is still very small. But um, as you pick up momentum and, and uh, the, the bow increases, there is a lot more uh, snow that gets stuck to it and it will start start rolling on its own with a very, very um, fast speed. 
I do expect that we're going to see something similar in uh, um, in the financial industry related to climate change and, and our uh, broader economy. Um, and I don't, however, um, uh, undermine the challenges that this is going to create for all of us. I think it's very normal human nature to be reluctant to change, to fear change, especially when it's so fundamental um, to how we've operated and how we've lived our lives and done our jobs for, for such a long time. But in this case, change is really not an option anymore. It is a non-negotiable and it's happening. Um, with or without um, our agreement. Um, and we have to acknowledge that uh, such massive changes and, and transitions do take time. Um, and uh, it will not be easy for everyone. It will be very, very challenging for some sectors, for some nations, for some uh, organizations. Um, and therefore collaboration and support is key support both financially and, and otherwise to ensure that everyone um, is given a chance to make the most out of this change. Decarbonization is, is not, um, does not always have to be radical. Um, it doesn't have to be all or nothing. And I think we, we got to accept that um, into our implementation plan, into our transition plans, um, and not leave anyone behind without the right level of um, support and, um, and collaboration. Thank you, Elena. That's, um, that's some very wise words to end on. I'm glad to hear that you're optimistic, particularly after reading the IPCC report. It's, um, it's pretty doom and gloom, but um, I, think, I think you're completely right. Um, there's, there's room for change um, and it will happen. Thank you so much for joining us on the Eco Business Podcast. Uh, we're really looking forward to seeing you at our um, Unlocking Capital for Sustainability event in uh, September. Uh, so that's on the 16th of September. Thank you very much again, Elena. It was great to talk to you. Pleasure speaking with you and thank you for this great conversation. This podcast was hosted by Eco Business, Asia's leading media company serving the region's sustainability community. Join the conversation by visiting eco-business.com, follow us on social media or subscribe to our newsletter. Thanks for listening.